Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this episode was prompted by a question. (laughs) Am I supposed to guess the question? Yeah. Uh, Whither goest thou, Democratic Party? That is exactly the question that you and I, you and I are, that is a question that we wonder about again and again, that why at a time when Republicans seem to be running on controversial education ideas and being rebuked by voters again and again, why has it been so hard for Democrats to articulate some kind of a message, some kind of a vision, some kind of a platform that we can all rally around? And so we went in search of answers. (laughs) That's right. We searched in some usual places and some unexpected places. The first thing that we did was look for Democrats themselves. And we found one, um, but we didn't find many. And I think that 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 tells you a lot. Uh, We spoke with Congressman Jamal Bowman, who does have a vision for education uh, and how it can be central to what the Democratic Party stands for. And he doesn't see the kinds of big swings that he would like to take in terms of education legislation as really standing a chance right now. So the question then is, what would it take in order for the Democratic Party to have enough of a coherent vision on education and to have enough of a groundswell of public support such that a leader on the left could really propose a bold vision for education, whatever it be, and actually stand a chance of winning on that. Um, In addition to Congressman Bowman, we reached out to friend of the show, John Vallant, at the Brookings Institution, and uh, an unexpected uh, friend at a nearby uh, think tank, Rick Hess of the American Enterprise Institute, And finally, Randy Weingarten of the American Federation of Teachers. Well, obviously, we're going to be hearing from a cast of thousands. I think we better get to work. Now to the main event. First up is Randy Weingarten, who requires no introduction, or at least not much of one. She's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, which is the country's second largest national teachers union. And she says that the results of recent elections at the state and local level are sending Democrats a strong message about the way forward. The value system that Americans have had about public education is still very much there. There is a narrative that is amplified by conservative, well-funded media like Newsmax and Fox and others that suggest that it isn't. But these elections showed that families really need and want public education. They love their teachers by and large. And we as a country need public education for pluralism for equity, for justice, for freedom, and for the long-term values 
of actually having a democracy. In our current news cycle, in which we seem to ricochet from one crisis to the next, those recent election results already seem like a distant memory. But it's worth pausing here for a moment to recall just how decisive they were and how much grassroots energy went into defeating culture-warring candidates. You had lots of small mom and pop and mom and mom and pop and pop grassroots parent groups. And what happened is that this kind of grassroots fight for public education connected with people. And so in the 250 races that we were watching pretty carefully, we won 80% of them. In Minnesota, 90% of them. In the big marquee races that everybody was looking at where you know, where the extremists, I know they call themselves Moms for Liberty or the 1776 Project, they always have very nice little names for their groups. But when you had the pro-public education person against this person who was talking about fear and doom and division and how bad the public schools were for kids, the public education person won. And so that's the kind of stuff that we saw. Okay, so pro-public education candidates are winning lots of elections in lots of places, and that in itself is an important lesson for Democrats. But there's a larger lesson here, says Randy. And yes, we are on a first-name basis. That lesson, it isn't enough for public education advocates just to be against the bad stuff. They've also got to articulate a broader vision of why we have public schools. It's not just about fighting against book bans or fighting against censoring of history. It's not just about fighting to see all kids. We have to, as public schools, do the things to help kids recover and thrive. So we have to take on loneliness. We have to take on learning loss. We have to move these systems from still being test fixated to being about experiential learning and the joy of learning and luring kids back to school and wanting to be in school in relationship with others and wrapping services around and really making schools the centers of community. And that's where the Democrats could actually really learn from what we've been doing. It's the fight against these unfreedom things like book banning and censoring of history, but we also really have to spend time not fighting their smears, but fighting for these solutions. So let's review. One, recent elections have demonstrated pretty convincingly that voters do not want candidates of chaos and culture war anywhere near their schools. Two, as unpopular as, say, banning books may be, we can't just be against stuff. And three, numbers one and two offer Democrats some direction. But before we get too excited, we need to reckon with the not-too-distant past. That would be the era in which Democrats became the party of a certain brand of education reform. Randy says that the waning of that era has opened the door for the party to articulate a different vision. Or it could. In the 90s and the early 2000s and the 2010 to 2020, you saw a lot of these gazillionaires who happen to be Democrats, you know, thinking that competition and top-down accountability was the way to run schools and create opportunity or success. And that didn't work a hundred years ago when it was done at the turn of the century in terms of top-down schooling, and it doesn't work now. 
it's much more complicated and you have to meet students' needs and they are social, emotional, and academic. And you have to trust teachers and respect them and give us the resources and have the kind of curricular work that is well-rounded in safe and respected and welcoming places. And so that's hard stuff and it doesn't get capable of being reduced to one soundbite. I think that stymied Democrats. And here's why those state and local elections we've been talking about are so important. Because that list of things schools could be doing that can't be reduced to a talking point or slapped on a bumper sticker, well, that's exactly what you see successful candidates running on right now. So you're seeing that on a state level in lots of different places, these things like wraparound services, like a focus on literacy, like a focus on STEM, like a focus on experiential learning, these kind of things are now arising again. And these are all democratic principles. The Republicans just want to destroy public schools and want to pit people against each other using a term like parents' rights. The Democrats are actually saying, no, we need to help nurture the whole child. And I think within that, there is a real robustness in a campaign moving forward. So Jack, we heard Randy making an argument that really isn't that different from one that you and I have been making. And that is that, you know, if you squint, you can see the outlines of a democratic response playing out right now at the state and local level, that you actually have people rallying around the kind of schools that they they care about and that they want to see. But as I was listening, I couldn't help but wonder whether you would find her argument that this has the makings of a a robust campaign. Will Jack find that convincing? <laughs> I think that I might just frame it a little bit differently and say that whereas one dominant strategy in American politics is to craft a kind of national party platform and seek to gain local support based on familiarity with the national platform, you could invert that and say, well, maybe the Democratic Party could gain more support for its national platform by building on smaller local projects that are rooted in the concerns of local communities and that are able to be more nuanced than might fit on a bumper sticker. And so I agree with Randy that the makings of a successful democratic platform on education are there, but it's going to require some coordination between people at the local level across the U.S., people at the state level, and then leaders at the national level such that somebody like Joe Biden would be able to speak to education and do so in a kind of broad and general way that's required when you're addressing a national audience, but to reference the many kinds of projects that are happening at the local level and that, again, are responsive to community concerns and rooted in local context and that are actually strengthening schools. And, of course, all of this aligns with what we know about how schools actually improve, right? Schools actually improve when policy efforts come out of local context and respond to immediate concerns of communities rather than being parachuted down from on high. 
Thank you, Jack. Next up in our all-star lineup is John Vallant. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and the director of the Brown Center on Education Policy. Have you heard superfans will recall his previous appearance back in 2019, in which he walked us through the complex and combustible politics of the charter school movement. That's episode number 76. Definitely check it out. Now he's back. And when we asked him why Democrats seem to be having such a hard time articulating a big vision for public schools, he responded with a question of his own. I mean, when is the last time we did see a clear, bold vision from the Democratic Party on education? It feels like we've had kind of two big education reforms that have defined the last quarter century or so, and it was test-based accountability and school choice. And in each case, those are kind of market-driven ideas with their ideological homes on the right. And in each case, there were these kind of delicate, fragile compromises between Republicans and Democrats, where Democrats played along and kind of made sure that those reforms happened on Democrats' terms. So we, we saw charter schools instead of big private school voucher programs. But to my eye, it's for decades been Republicans who have been sort of leading the way when it comes to big, bold visions. It's not necessarily a bad thing to not have one clearly defined big, bold vision for education reform. Okay, so apparently we could just end the show right here because our premise turns out to be flawed. Alternately, we could let John explain what he means. John, take it away. A lot of big reform ideas aren't very good ideas. And so if we have a a do-no-harm principle in here in play, like better to have no big reform idea than a bad one that causes harm. And then I think there's also the reality when it comes to schools and education policy that there just isn't one 100% solution to all of our problems. Like There isn't some mystery policy move that we're going to make, and then all of a sudden, all of the things we've worried about are going to be fixed. The reality is it's a thousand different things that we have to get right. And that isn't very elegant when it comes to selling a sort of big political vision for what we ought to be doing, but it's just the truth about how you make change. Almost all of those big reforms idea are really disruptive, and they tend to affect teachers the most. And there's, I think, a natural tendency for teachers and teachers unions to resist some of those big changes that would kind of fundamentally change what life is like in classrooms, because there's a good chance that those changes are going to cause more disruption and sort of headache than that they will solve problems that exist already. Or think about how often the traditional education ideas associated with Democrats get derided as tired retreads. John says we need to rethink that as well. I also think that we have a tendency to call the ideas that we get from Democrats stale and boring. It's like Democrats are always talking about teachers and they're always talking about school finance and that's boring because you've been talking about that for so long. But it's policy and who cares if it's stale and boring? If they're good ideas, like those are good ideas, even if they aren't sexy, new, fresh ideas, that is what very likely matters when it comes to getting the types of schools that we want that produce the kind of outcomes we want. And so I'm maybe a little sympathetic to the idea that we aren't sort of constantly chasing a new, big, bold idea that we haven't had with us in the past. Okay, so Jack, I know we've only just started 
hearing from John, but I got very excited and and I just I want to hear what you have to say. So John is referencing, you know, what it's a challenge for the Democrats that, you know, they are really the party of teachers and you hear this coming up again and again throughout the decades that people will actually point to the resistance of teachers to some reform idea and say, "Oh, well, that's proof that it's a good idea." And the the, you know, the Democrats just need to rein in this sizable part of their their base and you know and enact whatever the sort of bitter medicine is. And as I, you know, have been immersing myself in in fairly recent history, I'm amazed at what a consistent theme this is. Yeah. First, let me just say that I think John is a brilliant analyst and I love that we had an opportunity to bring him onto the show. I love hearing from him about what he sees happening, particularly with regard to the intersection between education and politics. But with regard to your question, Jennifer, I think that the Democratic Party needs to figure out a way to talk about education and teachers without simply taking sides, without simply being for teachers and their unions, whatever that entails, or as has often been the perception in the past 15 years or so, actually being anti-teacher and anti-union. And I think the winning proposition for Democrats right now is to talk about the teaching profession and what needs to happen in order for us to restore and rebuild the professional status of educators and the sustainability of teaching as a profession. That's very different than saying, you know, we are pro-teacher. It, of course, is pro-teacher, and that's why it's a way of threading this needle. But, you know, they have to recognize that they exist in a political ecosystem that has vilified unions and that has made educators look like bad guys, right? Adult interests is a phrase that has been floating around now for 20 years. And at the same time, you cannot have strong public schools without being pro-teacher. You cannot be pro-child without being pro-teacher, at least as I see it. And so I think what he's pointing to here is the need for the Democratic Party to figure out how to talk about things that are good for teachers in a way that does not make them vulnerable to the critique that they are just siding with teachers because teacher unions tend to side with the Democratic Party. Back to John Vallant, he made a compelling case that a bold vision may not actually be what's needed right now. But just for the sake of indulging us, it is the holiday season after all, what might a bold vision look like? We often make a mistake in the kind of education research and policy world where we think that all education policy has something to do directly with schools. And that's just not the case. Housing policy is education policy and tax policy is education policy and crime policy is education policy and transportation. The list goes on. So I think we have to keep a sort of broad understanding of what can qualify as education policy and a vision for improving schools. The number one agenda item for me, and I think this is one that we could see progress on on the federal level, if not, I think states could do something, we have to end child poverty. And we got a glimpse of how it can work, and we did it pretty well for a brief period of time there during COVID when we had the child tax credit. And if you look at child poverty rates, they plummeted to about 5% in 2021, which is still 5% too high, but it was a historic 
low when it comes to the child poverty rate. And then we let that child tax credit expire and it jumped right back up to 12% the next year in 2022. And that is a disgrace. If you can put kids in classrooms who are well-fed and they have the resources they need at home and they don't have mom who has to run off to a second job, that is as good as it would get in my mind when it comes to education policy. So my actual top line education policy vision would be, let's finally end child poverty in this country. In addition to John's top policy items like ending child poverty and strengthening and diversifying the teacher workforce, he says he'd like to see Democrats be bolder about challenging really bad education policy ideas. We are in an era where there are a whole lot of bad ideas that are floating around. And so some are the the kind of usual culture war issues that we keep seeing. Some of the anti-trans work and the anti-CRT work and the book bans and all of those kind of things. You have to actively fight against those ideas. And I think one, uh, the biggest failures of the Democratic Party in recent years is they were much too slow to get out front of some of those culture war issues and actually talk about the harm that can be done if we don't take those issues head on. And so in addition to those kind of more active and positive steps that I think the Democratic Party can take, I think it needs to also be ready and be there to engage when these bad ideas come up, because there are plenty of them now, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see more here in the future. Finally, John says we need to do a much better job of speaking up for public education at a time when our bipartisan tradition of beating up on the public schools has laid the groundwork for some really dangerous policies. I think it sometimes hurts us. We sort of lead conversations about our public schools in negative terms, talking about their problems. And the problems are real. You know, there are real problems when it comes to equity and opportunity and some of the outcomes we get. But as a whole, that system has served us really well. And I was just looking at some polling that spooked me, which is, so Gallup does this regular poll of how Americans feel about their different public institutions. Americans are down on institutions in general, which I think is concerning. But if you look at it with public schools, that drop has been especially precipitous. Only 26% of Americans said they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in public schools. It really broke by party more than it has at any time before, where it's now only 14% of Republicans are saying that they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in public schools. And that is a concern. And I think that is at the root of some of these policies. It's why we have this policy environment where we get reforms like universal education savings accounts that are just more antagonistic and more threatening toward public schools than the types of reforms we've seen in the past. Next up is Rick Hess, Senior Fellow and the Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, which, by the way, happens to be just down the street from Brookings, but occupies a somewhat different position on the ideological spectrum. If you're interested in education policy, you are no doubt familiar with Rick. He pens the Straight Up column for Ed Week, where he offers, quote, straight talk on matters of policy, politics, research, and reform. He identifies as a conservative, which means that we are often at odds on big education questions. Or as Jack put it, quote, I disagree with some of what Rick says all of the time, and I disagree with all of what Rick says some of the time. Thank you for that, Jack. But when we invited Rick to participate in this podcast, his response was immediate and enthusiastic. And like John, Rick says the Democrats have never really been the party of big education ideas because they haven't had to be. When you think about the signal triumphs, LBJ, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or Pell Grants, I mean, most of the things that we think of as 
signature Democratic triumphs were spending a lot of money to build out the system. It was more money for K-12, Obama's race to top, student loan programs, direct lending. Most of these things involved giving people or institutions money. That was actually plenty, I think, for Democrats to generally enjoy a 20 or 30 point lead on the issue because Americans generally like their schools. They've generally liked their colleges. They really like their teachers. And so Democrats could be the party of teachers and schools and government and call for spending money. And Republicans were the green eye shade guys for the last 30 or 40 years. And nobody likes the green eye shade guys. What's changed, I think, in the last four, five, six years is that the public has grown disgruntled with education. Rick says that for a number of reasons, public trust in education, both K-12 and college level, has been shaken. The pandemic, I think, really shook the etch-a-sketch on the public's trust and relationship with schools writ large. It created a sense that they couldn't count on the schools being there for them. Pandemic and post-pandemic inflation and staggering deficits racked up over the last couple of presidents have created different conversation around kind of spending and borrowing. I think disappointment with what we've seen out of $200 billion in pandemic emergency relief has made it harder to say we just need more money. Even Democratic staffers on the Hill will kind of say this right now. And then higher ed, I think, is in a world of hurt. Higher ed has... I think, allowed itself to drift to the point where it no longer feels at all representative for, you know, about half the adult population. And if you take discontent on the left with a general frustration of higher ed on the right, being the party of schools and spending in colleges turns out to be a much lousier place to be in 2023. So now the Democrats need a vision to try to get their mojo back. And there's none just sitting on the shelves. There's a bunch of constituencies with their own perspectives and their own agendas. And I think that's what you're seeing Democrats kind of fumble through. When Rick surveys the political landscape these days, he sees a loud and energized base in both parties, pushing for policies that he says lack broad support. This is the same tension you see on the right right now. What I think the progressive activist base wants and what, you know, what I think is probably policy that can avoid massive backlash and public discontent are two different things. So right now, you know, you've seen enormous energy invested in Biden's student loan forgiveness scheme, the modifications to income-driven repayment, which are student loan forgiveness on the sly. These things are beloved of kind of the, the graduate student community and the democratic base. But I think, especially in an inflationary environment, they don't play especially well with a lot of Americans in the middle of the spectrum. You see the same thing in a lot of the culture clashes, that it's absolutely true that Americans don't want books banned. They absolutely want American history talked about in honest and robust ways that are respectful of folks who've been historically marginalized. And to the extent that Republicans allow themselves to be seen as the party of book banners or the party that doesn't want to talk about history, they've got a huge problem. We'll be discussing whether it's fair to compare student debt relief and book bans a bit later in the episode. So if your head just exploded, this is your opportunity to reassemble it. But Rick's point is that education policy is polarized now in a way that it hasn't been in the past. When we asked him what Democrats could do to expand their base on education, Rick made the case for what he characterizes as middle ground policy options, the sort of things that have fallen out of favor, accountability, fiscal responsibility. Here, I'll let him do the honors. What would put fear into me? What would put fear into me is that the Democrats said, look, 
we're the guys who are here for schools, and that means the schools have to work. We put $200 billion in. We want to know whether it made any difference. New York City is spending $38,000 per kid per year. We don't want to hear that you guys can't enroll kids in summer school. We want to pay teachers a lot more, but we don't think the taxpayers need to be on the hook for that. We want to talk about why we're spending money on bureaucracy and why we've increased the number of central office administrators by over 90% since No Child Left Behind, while student enrollment has grown by 5%. We want to be the party that puts dollars in the classrooms, in the teachers' pockets, that safeguards schools against radical agendas, but make sure we're respecting every child, that we want higher ed that's going to be affordable. And affordable doesn't mean sticking people who don't go to college with the tab for people who did. We're going to be the people who are the friends of professors who are going to ask hard questions about whether they're creating environments that everybody feels welcome at. I mean, I think these are all things Democrats could absolutely do. And if they did, it would make it really hard for folks on the right to generate nearly as much enthusiasm for the things that we want to talk about. But I think right now, it's not where the center of gravity is on the left. And I think doing the things I just talked about would obviously create a whole lot of frustration and anger among the activist precincts of the left. If you found yourself groaning aloud while listening to that, then you are probably a big part of the reason why Rick's middle-of-the-road agenda isn't exactly catching fire. I think to the extent that what Democrats can offer is circumscribed by what plays with kind of the campus constituency and kind of the D.C. young invincibles crowds, what I've talked about is not going to happen. It's it's not on the cards. To the extent that you see some of the governors who I think are interesting on the Democratic side, Josh Shapiro, uh, Wes Moore, you see them stepping up and talking about the problem with credentialing. And Shapiro talks about the need to allow people without college degrees to compete for state jobs in Pennsylvania. And you see them talking about how do you empower parents in ways that the Democratic Party is comfortable with, if that means charter schooling or public school choice or wherever the center of gravity is among Dems. Maybe they will be able to win enough acclaim and build enough support that they can break the veto of the left base. But that's why we hold elections, and that's why legislative processes play out, because you never know till it's over. Okay, it's time for our final guest, and he's actually the inspiration for this episode. Jamal Bowman has served in the House of Representatives, representing New York's 16th congressional district since 2021. He's also a former school principal and a passionate advocate for making public education about more than just test scores. Last fall, our own Jack Schneider's Beyond Test Scores project worked with Representative Bowman's team to brief members of Congress on what the priorities should be in revising the Every Student Succeeds Act, which you know, of course, was the legislation that replaced No Child Left Behind. When we asked Representative Bowman about why Democrats seem to be having such a hard time articulating a pro-public education message, he pointed us back a few decades when, as he puts it, things got murky. I think things got murky during the No Child Left Behind era and during the charter school explosion of the early 2000s. And I think it got murky at that point because, you know, I'm sure you remember the original idea of charter schools was not the neoliberal sort of version that began to manifest all over the country. It was the idea of really grassroots teacher and parent coalitions creating 
publicly funded sort of quote-unquote independent schools, for lack of a better term. That was the initial sort of charter school idea, and specifically around certain things that weren't happening in public schools that should have been happening in public schools, like curriculum focused more on African-American history and culture, schools that did better to treat English language learners or students with disabilities. Public schools should be responding to all of this, But as you know, due to lack of funding and lack of vision, public schools have fallen short in those areas. He'd like to see defending and strengthening public schools become a marquee progressive cause. The same way the left has organized around criminal justice reform, around environmental justice, around truly affordable and housing as a human right, the left needs to start organizing around public education like that. The left needs to begin to engage in a lot more organizing locally and being very active and engaged as it relates to local school boards, because that's a space where the left could begin to take back the narrative as it relates to what's happening in our public schools, but also as it relates to charter schools moving into certain areas. I also think the left needs to begin to push back and create a vision for public schools, particularly in cities where mayoral control came into effect. Because mayoral control, as you know, was part of the testing, accountability, and charter school movement where mayors wielded tremendous power in holding teachers in public schools, quote unquote, accountable and closing them while opening charter schools. You know, it happened in Philly, it happened in New York City, happened in New Orleans, and it happened in many, many places. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, then you will be ready for our follow-up question. If public education becomes a progressive issue, well, doesn't that risk alienating constituents who don't identify as progressive? Representative Bowman says that he's not convinced. Take, for example, one of his major policy priorities, the More Teaching, Less Testing Act. Okay, so as Bowman himself concedes, the bill has almost no chance of passing right now. But the cause of reducing testing has bipartisan appeal. What's so frustrating about that is it's not because there isn't bipartisan support for the bill. You know, in New York State, while I was still a middle school principal, there was a huge movement that took place around test-based accountability called the opt-out movement. And that movement was a nonpartisan movement It engaged suburban soccer moms and urban basketball moms. It was in Title I communities and it was in wealthy communities. And the bottom line there was we are testing our kids too darn much. They are much more than a test score. You don't even engage or consult with us as parents around this testing. And so we are going to refuse to take the tests. It was Republican and Democrat. I mean, I had some of my best friends out of Long Island school districts who are Republican supported this, and the parents I worked with in the Bronx supported this. So it has bipartisan support. Way back at the very start of this episode, we heard from AFT President Randy Weingarten, who made the argument that the direness of this moment, both politically and educationally, have actually created an opportunity for Democrats. Well, Representative Bowman sees a similar opening. 
when we talk about education and our kids and our democracy and where things are, I mean, the stakes probably couldn't be any higher. I think it's really important for the left, and I would even argue not just the left, but people of conscience and people of truth and people of compassion to form a public education coalition that communicates a vision for where our schools need to go and what we need to be doing for our kids. This coalition has to be really clear on speaking the truth about where things are now, speaking the truth about where we have come from to get to this point, and speaking the truth in terms of a vision of what's possible in our schools if we get it right. As for what that vision would look like, when we handed Representative Bowman our metaphorical magic wand, he had no trouble listing off the policy priorities that he'd like to see. Make post-secondary learning opportunities free. Provide universal child care slash pre-K for free to everyone in the country. And center creativity in the K-12 curriculum. If we did this, by the way, those three things, we would figure out space travel. The new discoveries and new curiosity and intuition and innovation that would be in society, you would see an exponential increase in GDP, which, by the way, we already have research that shows every dollar invested in early child education yields. Some research says $7, some says $13. Research also tells us that when kids receive quality early child experiences and K-12 experiences, but particularly early child experiences, they have better health care outcomes. If you have better health care outcomes and you have better economic outcomes, you're going to see a dramatic decrease in jail and prison costs. It course corrects and recalibrates our overall society if we get these, these three things right. And it facilitates the process of lifelong learning if post-secondary opportunities are made free. A big thanks to Randy Weingarten, John Vallant, Rick Hess, and Representative Jamal Bowman for helping us wrestle with a big topic for this episode. This is not the last you've heard of the matter on this show. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what we learned from our guests and from one in particular. And of course, we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's in the weed segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. Is Moms for Liberty toast? Jack and I feel strongly that the obituaries for the group are a wee bit premature. If you want to know more, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. Okay, so Jack... I am imagining that there are a number of listeners who had a really hard time making it through the portion of the show where we handed the mic to Rick Hess. And I'm thinking of, I'm actually thinking of some specific listeners. Hey, Marshall. (laughs) Um, And these would be, you know, like... uh, prominent advocates for for student loan forgiveness who are probably a little bit surprised to hear that they're being held up as kind of the the equivalent of you know like a mobs for liberty on the left <laughs> and and so uh so on the one hand you know I think it's it's worth unpacking a little bit 
the, you know, we could probably make the case that if anything, Biden's poll numbers are being dragged down by the fact that he wasn't successful at delivering student loan relief to a big part of his his younger base in particular. But because it's the holidays, I want to just acknowledge how tough times are for conservative reformers like a Rick Hess. And that the, you know, the the landscape has shifted so dramatically since you and I started working on this program together eons ago. Um, when you think about how, you know, things like how little talk there is right now about things like accountability, or even, you know, think about the way that the School quality has been so defined in terms of sending kids to college, and now you've got this sharp turn against higher education coming from the right that, you know, Rick himself was was articulating a bit. And so I want to take the opportunity, just because we are in the season of gratitude and forgiveness, to acknowledge that while I don't agree with a lot of Rick's take, I sympathize with what a tough spot he and his ilk of reformer in right now. I really appreciated his take on the position that the Democratic Party is in with regard to education, where historically, and here I see him agreeing with John Vallant, the Democratic Party has not really had a clear position on education, a clear platform on education beyond more money, Right? That's a point that Rick makes, is building out the system and spending more and sort of broadly supporting teachers and their unions, which, you know, we talked about earlier, kind of comes and goes, but that's that's been a broad historical position. And right now, that isn't really good enough. And it's especially not good enough when the middle has disappeared, right? The, the middle of the political spectrum has kind of fallen through the floor. And so the question then is, should the Democrats try to create a new middle there? And he offers some ideas about how that could happen. And and it is happening in some states where governors are trying to carve out a kind of middle way, a third way, if you will. (laughs) Or, Or if they should bank hard to the left and and stake out a really progressive vision. Obviously, he's much more skeptical of that than somebody like I am. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I appreciate the take because it's important to know what kind of resistance the Democratic Party would encounter, both from its own centrist members as well as from those on the right who believe in public education, right? Somebody like Rick believes in public education, even though he and I disagree about how best to execute it. Well, I have to say that I learned a lot doing this episode, and I was just really happy that you came up with this idea. So thank you, Jack. (laughs) What a good boy. Well, once again, it is time for us to reveal the topic of our In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters, and we are headed into the weeds and off to the right. We are going to be, (laughs) we're immersing ourselves in the question of what is next for Moms for Liberty, and Jack and I have a specific take that it turns out very few people agree with. And if you want to hear the salacious details about the latest scandal involving at least one mom, then this is actually the wrong place to hear that. You're going to want to do some Googling. But but uh, 
there's good news for you too, and that is that the real meat and potatoes of the show is always free. Thank you for joining us thus far. Thanks for doing what you can to support the show. I actually did try in Apple Podcasts looking up Have You Heard? And we are the number two Have You Heard that shows up. There is a Christian uh, inspiration podcast that comes up for It has a question mark, and we don't, so that is one way to distinguish us. But it has many more readings than we do. Similarly rated, both very positive. We appreciate that. And we appreciate their ratings. Uh, maybe I'll take a listen to their show and be inspired. Um, but there are small things you can do like that that help us uh, grow the show and grow the community. Of course, the best way, our favorite way is share it with somebody you care about. And it is the holiday season. So you could just give the gift of have you heard to somebody who isn't already a listener or a subscriber. And of course, if you are feeling particularly generous this holiday season, come with us into the weeds. All you have to do is become a supporter at patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of the various extras you can get, like joining us in this relatively unscripted area we call the weeds, but also you get a reading list and sometimes we send you complimentary books. Anything else that I'm forgetting? I really thought you were going to say a gift basket full of our favorite items that we have been selecting for you all year long. (laughs) That would be great. Alas, that is not happening. Pencils, pens, protractors, the very finest compasses that we've encountered. But what you absolutely get from us is our gratitude for the fact that you keep coming back and listening to the show and supporting us. We appreciate your support so much, and we can't wait to explore more of these topics in 2024. We will not lack for topics. (laughs) I think that's it. 